0: Welcome back to the program. In spite of some interesting rhetoric and the self-selecting experiments like those done by Peter Thiel and the careers of Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg, college is essential for success in today's workplace. Recent statistics show that for those with only a high school diploma, the unemployment rate is over 12%. For those with a four-year degree, it's 4%. But how did we get to an environment that on the one hand makes college the central pillar of economic success in a knowledge-based economy? And yet, because of costs, push college further and further out of the reach of middle and lower socioeconomic groups. Was this an accident of public policy or a deliberate attempt to perpetuate the elite? We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Suzanne Mettler. She is the Clinton Rossiter Professor of American Institutions at Cornell University. She's a fellow at the Century Foundation. And it is my pleasure to welcome Suzanne Mettler here to talk about her new book, Degrees of Inequality. How the Politics of Higher Education Sabotage the American Dream. Suzanne, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here to chat
0: with you today. It's great to have you here. It is a powerful irony that just really is brought to the surface in reading Degrees of Inequality, this idea that college as an instrument of success in today's society has become more and more critical at precisely the same time it has become much more expensive and much less accessible. Talk about that.
1: Yeah, this is really, as I see it, a great tragedy. Through the middle of the 20th century, from the creation of the GI Bill for veterans after World War II, right up through the creation of Pell Grants in the early 1970s, we were succeeding in creating these new landmark policies that were enabling more and more Americans from across the income spectrum to go to college and Americans really began to think of college as the path to the American dream, as a real means of social mobility. And we still tend to think of it that way today, but it's not working out. Uh, as well as it should be for younger generations of Americans, despite the fact that it's more important than ever today to have a college degree. So what we're seeing is that now, whereas the United States just a few decades ago was the international leader in terms of the percentage of our young people who had college degrees, we've been surpassed by about 10 other nations and then if you look at who um are who's getting college degrees today you'll see that we've had big increases among young people who come from Of families in the top income quartile, but among the bottom 75%, we've seen pretty modest growth since the 1970s. And for people who grew up in households below median income, there's barely an increase in the percentage of young people with four year college degrees than there was in the 1970s. So it's still only just one in 10 people from the bottom Uh, quarter of the income spectrum who get a four-year college degree and only 15% of those from the next quarter up. And then uh, making matters even worse, even for some of those people who do go to college, they can end up being worse off than if they'd never attended um, because where you go to college today is uh, equally important to whether or not you get a degree. And there are some schools particularly the for-profit sector, that do a pretty poor job of serving students and a a pretty large share of their students end up with uh, so much debt that they're not able to get jobs that help them to repay that debt. So they can even be worse off than if they'd never gone to college.
0: How relevant is the for-profit sector in higher education today? In some respects, it seems like it's a very small portion of the problem.
1: Well, you know, that's what I thought when I started working on this book. People were mentioning it to me, and I was sort of ignoring it because I really didn't think of it as important. As recently as the early 1990s, it was just around 1% or 2% of all college students enrolled in the for-profits, but it's now up around 10% of all students. And it uses, uh, the students going to the for-profits utilize one in four federal student aid dollars, um, and they account for almost half of all student loan defaults. So it's a rapidly growing sector, and it's heavily consequential for both uh, the finances of student aid to American taxpayers, and then it also has these pretty severe consequences for just the kind of students we would particularly like to see having opportunity through higher education. You know, I wrote an earlier book on the GI Bill And I interviewed World War II veterans. I was working on this in the late 1990s. And I met all of these men who had grown up poor, but because of the GI Bill, they had this opportunity that they, you know, just couldn't have dreamed of previously. And they got advanced education, went to college, and had all sorts of life outcomes that they never could have imagined as children. And if you look at who are the same people today who are similarly situated and have similar aspirations, well, they're low-income people who end up using federal student aid to go to the for-profit colleges, but the outcomes are very different because, uh, the graduation rates, uh, at these schools are about 22%, and the average student ends up with $33,000 in debt, uh, just from their, their federal student income uh from their, their federal student loans so it doesn't even count private loans that they may take out in order to attend these schools so you know their hope for having educational opportunity can turn into something that's very disappointing
0: even in the, the non-profit side in both public and private universities we have seen this dramatic and still ever-growing increase in tuition Talk a little bit about what the tipping point for that was when we really started to see this going completely out of control.
1: Yeah, well, tuition has been rising over the last few decades. Um, But you have to look kind of, you have to sort of look underneath the hood to see what's really going on and how consequential it is. And it varies dramatically by sector, and it varies dramatically by institution. Now, in the private nonprofit colleges, there you have the highest sticker price or actual published tuition. But in fact, the average student that attends these schools only pays about half of that amount because they're given a fair amount of financial Financial aid, some of its need based, some of its merit based, and so on. And those schools, uh, the individual institutions vary quite a bit in terms of how much they actually try to recruit low income and and middle income students and how much they support them through supplemental aid from the institution uh, that can really enable them to get through. Um, and then if you look at the public institutions, that's where, uh, while they still are the most affordable institutions around compared to these other sectors I've been talking about, but they've had rapid uh, tuition increases over- since uh, the 1980s. Um, since 1990, um, tuition increases of about 113%. And this is highly consequential for low to middle income students because it can make the difference between uh, going to college or not and staying enrolled once you're there or not. Uh, And it also means that they are having to squeeze their resources and they have more students in the classroom and more students are taking online classes as a way to uh, for these institutions to save money, and all of that's stuff- problematic for graduation rates because, um, you know, particularly for students who might come from a less advantaged background, um, it's student support services and smaller faculty to student ratio and so on that really helps them to complete their degree. So the question you're asking is, why has this happened and why has it happened so dramatically in the public sector? Well, it's happened because states are no longer supporting uh, public universities and colleges in to the extent that they were through the middle of the 20th century. They've really uh, pulled back, and they've pulled back because there have been competing priorities from other policy areas, uh, such as Medicaid and K-12 education and uh, prisons. Uh, And they've also pulled back because uh, I found, as I I did a quantitative analysis of this, um, that many states now um, are, particularly since 2000, uh, will not raise revenues. And so um, despite the fact that with rising economic inequality, there are wealthy people in a lot of states who could be paying more, but but states are very reluctant to raise taxes, and some of them over the last few decades have adopted various policies that make it really difficult for them to raise taxes unless they put it on a referendum.
0: Go back to 1980. You talk about this golden age, really, in in public education that went on between 1960, essentially, and 1980. What happened in 1980 that began to change the equation?
1: Well, actually, in the 1980s, the um, the states continued to invest quite a bit in public higher education. At that point, the federal government was pulling out and was doing less, but states were making up the difference. But it was really in the 1990s that states started having these competing demands and then started to uh, allocate less and less to public higher education. And the problem is that these um, competing demands are all in areas that we would call mandatory spending. Um, so, for example, you know, if you have more people who qualify for Medicaid or more children um, who need to go to the, the schools, that's mandatory spending. And so higher education being a discretionary area was the area that got the budget axe.
0: Talk a little bit about one of the other things that we've seen in many of these universities is that what used to be aid in the form of grants is now aid in the form of loans.
1: Right. Yeah, if you go back to the 1970s, the average student on financial aid was getting more in grants than they were in loans, and they weren't you know, becoming so indebted to go to college. Um, and that's really uh, reversed. And so, you know, it, it makes it a very different calculation um, when you go to college if you're going to borrow a lot to do so. Now, I think I'll say something here where I think that the um, our national discussion about this doesn't go deep enough because we talk about student loans as if borrowing is necessarily a bad thing. For most students, if they are going to a reputable college and they're going to borrow some, but not too much, it's actually the best investment they could possibly make. And it's going to pay back for them quickly, and they'll pay off their loans. And having gone to college will have been the best decision they could make. Um, But for some students, if they go to schools where the outcome of of their education um, really does not enable them to get the kind of job that would help them to repay those loans, then that was not a good investment for them.
0: Talk a little bit about federal public policy and what's happened. First of all, the Pell grants that were set up for this purpose have not kept pace with the costs, as we've been talking about, but just the the general degree to which this issue has become so politicized.
1: Right. Yeah, well, if you look back to the 1980s, I mean, during the middle of the 20th century, um, Democrats were enacting a lot of these landmark public policies, but Republicans were uh, also on board. And you had, for example, Richard Nixon signed into law, the Pell Grant policy. Uh, and there was a lot of bipartisan support around these issues. Once we got to the 1980s, uh, for a while, the policies were running on autopilot um, because there was uh, some growing partisan division Um, and uh, at this point, the Pell Grants started to fall behind in real terms because the way they're structured, there's no cost of living adjustments that happens automatically, so lawmakers have to vote in every budget year to increase them. So they were falling behind, and various other policies were beginning to generate unintended consequences. The kind of thing that happens if lawmakers are not being serious about Uh, Policy maintenance, what I call, uh, you know, upkeep of policies and managing public programs. But then once we got to the late 1980s and early 1990s, they were beginning to reach across the aisle and to engage in some bipartisan reform efforts, just as these were getting underway suddenly much greater partisan polarization happened from uh, starting around 1993, 94, 95, and it's grown much worse to the present. So today we really have most uh, polarized Congress in modern history, um, in terms of uh, the political parties. And that makes it really difficult to negotiate around these issues. And it means that lawmakers are just not willing to engage in the kind of careful examination of policy effects, whether they're functioning as they were intended to, and how they're administered, how they're managed, and so on. Um, So it can really take things off the rails.
0: And talk a little bit about how this is playing out for the colleges and universities in terms of supply and demand where you have certain institutions where you have record-breaking number of of applications and smaller institutions that are really struggling right now because of costs and because of some of the issues we've been talking about.
1: Right, yeah. Now, we're in a time of a lot of crisis in higher education of um, many institutions really struggling. I would say there are a lot of of the um, small nonprofit uh, private institutions that are struggling, uh, in part, they have the dilemma of their sticker price, which to the average consumer looks like the real price because people don't know that they're actually, you know, they stand to, to their their child might get a lot of financial aid by going there, um, and so th- that's hurting those institutions. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, people are turning to, to the, the publics in much bigger numbers because they are much more affordable, but they are really strapped because they don't have sufficient funding to try to, uh, take care of all of these, these students who have great needs.
0: Talk a little bit about what the universities and colleges themselves are doing, if anything, to begin to address some of these issues.
1: Well, I think it really varies by institution. I mean, you certainly have some nonprofit privates that are really more interested in rising up in the rankings of U.S. News and World Report than they are in providing educational opportunity. And so they are tempted to use their institutional endowment money to give it to students who have high SAT scores. And these students tend to come from higher income Families, and so that doesn't do much for expanding educational opportunity, particularly if they're not helping to supplement the uh, federal aid that lower income students receive. There are other institutions that are really trying hard to to seek out low income students and to support them um, and to try to get them through. Um, and, uh, so, you know, that's going to be the question I think going forward. And it's really, I think what the Obama administration is trying to get at with the rating system that they're proposing is to try to see, um, how much of a good faith effort is made by particular institutions to expand opportunity. Um, and, uh, You know, if you look back historically in my book, I kind of go back to the Northwest Ordinance and the Morrill Act and so on. It's really interesting how in the United States, we have a long tradition going back to our beginnings as a nation of using uh, the authority of the federal government together with state governments and private institutions to work together for broad public goals through higher education. And what exactly the goals are have changed over time with the nation's history. But I think that today, for a whole variety of reasons, we need to try to pursue these goals again, to provide more upward mobility for people, to help to Salvage uh, the middle class in the United States, to have more of a trained workforce, and to foster more active civic engagement and political participation and a future leadership. We need to have more uh, people who are getting college degrees um, and people from across the income spectrum. So we need to find ways to get all of these actors cooperating again and holding up their part of the bargain. Um, Because, you know, you have. The, the states and the private nonprofits both get a lot of federal aid, so they need to be held accountable, as do the for-profits, uh, in order to ensure that they are really serving their students well and uh, providing opportunity.
0: It's interesting because so much of this can be found if you look back in the, you know, the 1960s and California's master plan for education really addressed right. precisely these kinds of issues that you're talking about.
1: Yes, exactly, right. You no, know, we had very widespread agreement around the value of these concerns. Uh, you know, during that point in time in the middle of the 20th century. If you look at public opinion today, Americans generally still support these kinds of values, these kinds of goals, but it's our political system which, you know, for a whole variety of reasons has um, really uh, gone away from them.
0: The other thing is the degree to which business, unhappy with the quality of, of workers that they're getting, really has to step in and and make their voice heard in this as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I have talked to people involved in business who feel very strongly that we need more highly educated Americans, that we um, have various areas in which we have a real undersupply of people with sufficient education to um, do the jobs that need to be done. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, th- I think that that is often not heard, um, and we really need to, to figure out how to, uh, to work together with those goals in mind.
0: How does the community college system in various states fit into this equation that you're talking about?
1: Well, um, community colleges are a, a critical component of this because, for uh, particularly for um, low-income people and people who might be the first in their families to be going to college, they provide this excellent source of education that's very affordable, where students take out uh, very little uh, in loans to attend. Um, and uh, so we need to do more to bolster those institutions, to support them, to provide greater resources to them. Um, And I think, you know, to make them a really viable alternative to the for-profits, because they often provide the same kinds of degrees, the same kind of training, but at a much lower cost to people. But often the students who go to the for-profits don't realize that they have that alternative that would be much more advantageous to them.
0: In your reporting on this, what, is, what does it tell you is the key political debate right now that really impacts how we handle these issues? Um,
1: well, you know, it, it's uh, in some ways it depends upon the particular issue. There's particular issues around, you know, um, all of these different policy areas. Um, if you stand back from it... Um, I suppose, uh, you know, we, we tend to be in debates now about um, the role of government, generally speaking. Although, even then, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. <laughs> when it comes to the for-profits, for example, what's so surprising to me... Is that in an era when a lot of people say they stand for fiscal conservatism, they are willing to line up together to support this industry that, you know, is really private in name only. It, uh, you know, it's privately owned, but ninety uh, or eighty-six percent of their revenues come from government. Um, of of the average uh, for-profit college, uh, and this is despite the fact that you know they're traded on Wall Street and so on. And so, you know, it's there, the whole idea that this is the um, approach that's in favor of markets and the private sector kind of breaks down quickly. And then on the other side, you know, you um, the for profits are defended uh, by Democrats who will say, well, they're good for low income people and they're uh, they're creating opportunity. Well, if you look at the outcomes, they're not doing such a great job of that either. So I guess I take the broad public debate with some grain of salt, because it's not always what it seems when you look underneath the issues.
0: And finally, what is your sense about where we go from here? How is this going to continue to play out?
1: Well, um, so there's, you know, what I think might happen and what I hope might happen. <laughs> um, what I hope would happen would be that we would really step back and instead of just getting into all of the kind of technical and small bore issues and the next reauthorization of the Higher Education Act and so on, that we'd really step back and uh, talk more broadly about the broad public goals that need to be pursued uh, through higher education and uh, expanding opportunity. That's what I hope we'll do. It's an area that for a long period of time was quite bipartisan. Even as polarization began to grow, it was still quite bipartisan, and we should be able to regain that again. I think there's lots of room for common ground.
0: Suzanne Mettler, the book is Degrees of Inequality, How the Politics of Higher Education Sabotage the American Dream. Suzanne, I thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Well, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.